We are going to be reading from several passages in 2 Samuel, and really is critical that you have your Bibles open today. It's helpful every Sunday, uh, but if you don't have one, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 264 is where we're going to be begin. Where we're going to begin, and you see this lighthouse behind me. It's a visual illustration of something I hope happens today. A lighthouse, as you know, is a is a warning signal to both ships and souls, warning the traveler that they may be moving in a dangerous direction, and make adjustments before. They may shipwreck themselves. And my prayer this morning is that as we absorb this story and the disastrous events of this story, every soul would listen like it was a lighthouse from the Lord. And to ask yourself, am I traveling in a dangerous direction? Is there some adjustment that I need to be making now before I shipwreck? shipwreck myself and maybe other people that I care for. We read a couple of weeks ago in 2 Samuel in verse chapter 11 and 12 about David's sexual abuse of Bathsheba. And when she became pregnant, then he tried to cover up his sin, which is never successful, and eventually ordered the murder of her husband, Uriah. In chapter 12, God mercifully sent someone to confront David in his sin, to uncover his sin. The prophet Nathan, you remember that story told about the sheep, and eventually said to David, you are the man. Nathan concludes his confrontation with David with these words from chapter 12, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and taken the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did, not, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son." And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan's prophetic words play out over the next six chapters, 13 through 18. And this morning I wanted to read several passages. And I realize if you're not familiar with the story, some of the names are a little hard to keep in mind. And it's a rather long story. Uh, And so if you want to follow along, I will tell you the verse reference over the next five chapters. But if you just want to try to sit and listen, uh, it won't take you long to realize that David has made a disaster of his life because of his sin and because he's tried to cover up his sin. And as you do, I just want you to consider the lighthouse that the Lord may be using this passage as a warning for you that sin, sin is never your friend. Hiding it only compounds the problems. Let's begin with chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. 
And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, and the son of Shemai, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. Verse 5, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say, say to him, my sister Tamar come and may my sister Tamar come to give me bread and prepare food in my sight that, my, that I might see it and eat it from her hand. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and made and brought them into the chamber and Amnon, her brother, And when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I I carry by shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had for her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother's Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. Chapter 13, verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's son. And Absalom came to the king. Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and the servants go with your servants. And he wanted to throw a big feast. Verse 26, Absalom said, If you don't go, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, Well, why should he go? And Absalom pressed him and said, Okay, let him go. Then Absalom commanded his servants... Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous, be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons rose and each mounted on his mule and fled away. Chapter 14, verse 23. Joab rose and went to Geshur, which was where Absalom had fled to, and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. And the king, David, said, Let him dwell in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Chapter 15, verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to King David, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. 
For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. When Absalom went, 200 from Jerusalem who were the invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, who was David's counselor. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after David. Then David said to all of his servants, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Chapter 17, verse 23. Sorry, chapter 15, 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Chapter 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and and all the people, the men of Israel, came into Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Verse 20. And Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? And he said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom. Chapter 17, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off for home to his own city, set his house in order, and hung himself. Chapter 18, verse 5. And the king, King David, ordered Joab, his general, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom when you go to war. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was very great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branch of a great terebinth, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule was under him and went on. And a certain man saw it and told 
Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Verse 17. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. Verse 33, last verse. And King David was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son. My son, just take a few minutes to consider this story and God's word. I heard some of you whispering, I hope Paul returns from his sabbatical and he can find more joyful verses in the Bible to preach about. By God's providence, we end our series here this week and next on David's life, and just unfortunately, his life doesn't end well. What I want to do is just review this and try to just recap the story for you and then just give you four points of application all of which you could make yourself from this passage. Chapter 13. David had at least seven wives and several concubines, so his family tree is complicated. He has a son, Absalom, and a daughter, Tamar, from the same wife, and then he has a half, they have a half-brother named Amnon. So they all share David as their father, but Amnon has a different mother. Amnon allowed the lust for his half-sister to take control over him, so he schemes to arrange a private meeting, pretends to be sick, and asks her to come and care for him. When Tamar comes, he violates her and then throws her out of his room. And you can easily see, can you not? Like father, like son. Here we are just two chapters later. And what the father did gets repeated in the life of the son. When David heard about it, he was very angry, but you notice he did nothing. We can't say why, but certainly it seems plausible that just the weight of his own guilt. Sometimes the weight of your own sin somehow cages you to move against the sin and other people. But his inaction planted a seed of bitterness in Absalom, the brother of Tamar. He wanted justice 
rightfully so, for his sister. And David's inaction created a bitter root in Absalom's heart that plays out. So Absalom decides to devise his own scheme. When we go to, to uh, shear the sheep, we have a big feast and we invite our family to. And he knew David wouldn't want to come, so he gets the brother Absalom, Amnon there. And he says to his hitmen, sort of like seen out of the Godfather, Hey, when he's had a little too much to drink, take him out. It's exactly what they did, and everybody knew Absalom was behind the hit, so he flees across a border, the border of Israel to a country called Geshur. Chapter 14. Another scheme is devised by Absalom, which allows David, which David allows for Dave, for Absalom to actually come back to Jerusalem. But David's heart is hardened towards his son. You notice he comes back and he says, Jerusalem is a relatively small city, and says, we can't ever have a face-to-face conversation. He has to live in his house. He can't see me, the king, his dad. Eugene Peterson, great commentator on this passage, says, Absalom stewed in bitterness while banished from the king. He was home, but yet he wasn't home. This was no life just to be permitted to exist. He wanted acceptance. He wanted a personal word of forgiveness. He wanted his father's love. He required grace and mercy. Eventually, Absalom gave up hope of intimacy with his father and determined to take things in his own hands. If his father would exclude him from his presence, he would go one better. Absalom would exclude David from the kingdom itself. What we learn here is that when Absalom is emotionally wounded, he patiently plots revenge. Takes years to put these things into place, first against Amnon and then against David. So he launches another scheme for a hostile takeover of David's kingdom and his throne and to eventually eliminate David, just like he did his brother. Chapter 15, four years goes by. And Absalom's seeds of bitterness have grown, and he concocts a conspiracy theory, not surprising in political realms, at the city gate. Think of this as the judicial center of a city. This is where things get adjudicated. A lot of business happens here. And every day for four years, Absalom stands at the city gate, and as people come in looking for justice from the king... Absalom stands there and insults David for four years. Chapter 15, verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to, king, to the king for judgment. And Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see what's happening, do you not? Fits right into our political system. You don't like the king. You think you have a better way of doing things. So you position yourself in a politically advantageous way and you kiss everybody's hand and you say everything would be all right if just I were the king and this sorry person who's in the office right now, as soon as they leave, then justice can really reign. 
And David allows this to go on for two years. Pretty much sounds like our politicians. And after four years, Absalom is ready and he pretends... Notice he pretended he needed to go to a worship service. Isn't that interesting? A politician pretended to need to go to a worship service for a grab for power. That sounds pretty much like what we live in now, does it not? He pretends he needs to go to a worship service and he he goes and it's all a scheme He's gotten a certain number of people already on his side that when he goes to Hebron, which is where David first was crowned the king, so it's a very important pregnant city with that theme, he now is going to crown himself the king. And it says the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom. Wow, we're a long way from David killing Goliath, are we not? David hears of it and he knows that the strength of the people is on Absalom's side, so he flees the city. And in a very powerful, pregnant scene, the king, covered with shame, climbs the Mount of Olives, weeping. We'll come back to that. Chapter 16, Absalom enters as the new king. And he has to have some sort of public display to tell everybody, I'm the king. And so Ahithophel, which is hard to say, and let's just pretend I'm saying it correctly, all right? Ahithophel, you remember, he's the guy that when you come and get counsel from him, it's as if you're hearing from God himself. David knew this. Absalom knew this. Everybody knew it. And so Ahithophel comes and he decides he's going to side with Absalom, not with David. He'd previously been uh, advising David. He's shifted allegiance to Absalom. And he tells Absalom, hey, in order to make sure everybody knows you're the king, you have to sleep with the king's wives or concubines. So in a fulfillment of God's word, they pitch a tent on the roof where David was standing when he lusted after Bathsheba. And in a way that everyone can see, woman after woman marches into the tent. It's sickening. And you wonder about Ahithophel. Why why would this guy, who's known to be godly, his trusted advisor, why why would he why would he turn against David? He had previously given David godly advice. Ahithophel had a son named Eliam. And if you look in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, this is the the list of all the mighty men of David. Eliam has a son in that group. So not only had Eliam, uh, had Ahithophel given great advice, he'd actually given his son to the army. And his son was a person who stood and fought side by side with David. So why does, he, why does such a prominent friend choose Absalom? Why does he suggest such a disgusting display of power? In chapter 10, he actually volunteers to go kill David himself. I didn't know this until just studying this week. The answer to that question is that Ahithophel had a son, Eliam, who got married and had a daughter. So he has a granddaughter, and her name is 
Bathsheba. I have a granddaughter. If my friend had sexually assaulted her, you can at least appreciate his bitterness, can you not? The damage David has done with his sin and trying to cover it up. When Ahithophel learned about it, something broke inside of him and it never got better. Chapter 17, verse 23. Ahithophel gave another piece of advice. Let me go kill David. And Absalom says, no, we're going to do something different. And Ahithophel decides to hang himself. Ahithophel had been given a bitter pill, understandable, but he didn't take control of it. It took control of him. See, this can happen to you. You can be given a bitter pill. It's nothing, nothing about you, nothing about your sin, but handed this bitter pill, and then you have to decide how you're going to deal with this bitter pill. And Ahithophel let it grow. Let it, he nurtured it with this fertilizer of anger. And he ended up devouring his own soul. Chapter 18. Absalom and David's army eventually collide in a dense forest. And it says the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And as David's army is preparing to collide with Absalom's army... David's hard heart finally breaks for Absalom. And he says to Joab, his general, deal gently with Absalom. But it's too, it's too late, David. You had a chance for your heart to break for your son before, but it's too late. And a very unusual accident, as you heard, Absalom gets his head gets stuck in a tree. Now, whether he just didn't duck or I'm not sure how it happens. He, he noticeably had some long hair. We're not sure. But his head gets stuck, his mule goes on, and he's hanging, it says, between heaven and earth. Joab hears of that and takes a spear and thrusts it into the heart of Absalom and kills him against the words of David, deal gently with Absalom. And then we have this wail at the end. Oh, Absalom. My son, my son. One of the saddest, most painful cries in the Bible. Four pieces of application quickly, all of which you have seen for yourself. One, forgiveness and consequences. It's good to listen here. God's forgiveness even our own forgiveness of one another does not always remove the consequences of our sin. You've got to have that. You've got you to know that. God's forgiveness, even our forgiveness of one another, doesn't automatically remove the consequences of our own sin. You can be forgiven and still face the consequences of your choices. And maybe you think, well, Paul, these disastrous consequences, they seem like a contradiction of God's love. And I would suggest that it's at least possible that these consequences actually complement God's love. 
Paul Tripp. We are so able to see sin as attractive. To see sin as not dangerous. So able, so able to convince ourselves that even after a disastrous decision, oh, we can still be contrasted with the control. You hear what he's saying? Even after making our own disastrous decisions, the way our minds works is, I'll be okay the next time. If consequences, trip goes on, bring us to the end of that delusion by letting us taste a bitter harvest of our own sin, then it's not a contradiction of love, and it's, it's an expression of love. You see what he's saying? He puts a boundary in with the consequences so David can always be reminded, I can't control my own life. I can't control my own lust. I need some help from the outside. If I pretend that I could somehow am in charge the next time around, I'm likely to step in the same dark cave. Every parent here understands that principle, do they not? You forgive your child, but you say you're going to have to live with the consequences. Painful consequences can keep us from repeating old sins. Number two, the far-reaching consequences. Sin is never private, especially those in leadership positions. I, I don't need to review all the wreckage here caused by David, but it's like a, a long highway with just one disastrous wreck after another of lives. And David is the leader. He's, he's the person who's like the headwater of this downstream river. And he's poured poison into the beginning. And the poison now is leaking out to every ecosystem as it travels down the river. And perhaps because I'm a grandfather of a granddaughter, I thought most about Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, again, understandable bitterness but he swallows the poison instead of spitting it out. Strangles himself on his own bitterness. And you might say to him, hey, what happened? And he would give you a story that you'd say, I understand. But then you're going to have to say, don't let it hang you. Sin is never private. Number three, David as a father. David, as we know, was an acclaimed military hero. David was an amazing political leader. David was an accomplished poet and songwriter. He is the author of half the Psalms. But David was an awful, awful father. Again, Eugene Peterson. I pause and reflect how differently the story might have turned out if David had anticipated the story of Jesus when he told about the father whose son went into a far country, lived a life of self-indulgence, and returned having disgraced his father's house. Even though the son had done a terrible thing, the father never quit looking for him, looking for a way to forgive, looking for a way to restore and when he did finally come home, the father ran to embrace, welcoming the son home with a huge banquet. What if David had been that father? What could have happened? But David didn't do that, Peterson says. Instead, David turned hard on Absalom. He had his reasons, of course, and no doubt thought he was doing a good, good for Absalom, punishing him until he felt the full weight of responsibility. 
But whatever line David used to rationalize his position underneath it, there was a refusal to forgive, a withholding of grace, a denial of mercy, all which led to disaster. It seems a little surprising to me that David couldn't offer that because he had been offered it. In Nathan's promise, your sins are forgiveness forgiven you should die david but you're not going to die and here why can't he somehow extend the grace that's been given to him are you aware of the grace and mercy that is extended to you right now so that when you enter in these difficult situations you at least enter in with a heart of mercy and grace towards other people (coughs) fathers and mothers but especially fathers I cannot overestimate the importance of your leadership role in your family. You and your wife are the headwaters of the river of your legacy. What you pour into your family, poison or purity, will have a way of affecting ecosystems for generations to come. Finally, and I'm so thankful we're ending on communion today, We desperately need another king. And you probably picked up on the two shadows of Jesus in this account. First, David, he's the king climbing the Mount of Olives. This is the same place where Jesus climbed, the same mountain into the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside of Jerusalem. He's the king that's climbing because of the shame and consequences of his own sin. King David was carrying his own sin and shame. Jesus is carrying my sin. And my shame. Absalom, the son of David. He tried to grasp for himself the throne of his father. His life ended hanging on a tree suspended between heaven and earth. A spear was thrust into his side and broke open his heart. And he was buried under stone. You can see it already, can you not? We need another son of David. One who will not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but will empty himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Who is that new son? Jesus. Although we need to receive the warning of these chapters, we must also see that each of us have shipwrecked our souls And we are in desperate need of a savior. A king who has a way to undo the damage. A king who when he sits around the table, he offers grace and forgiveness. A king who pours out his life for the sinner. Exchanges his body and blood for those who are sinful so that they might be in relationship to him once again. This is the good news in the midst of a very sad passage, that a new king has come, Jesus. We all fit into this passage as the person who shipwrecked our lives, and part of our shipwreck has helped shipwreck another life. And if we don't have somebody to come in from the outside to help us, we're all shipwrecked souls. So today we...
praise the Lord for sending us Christ, our Savior. Now, as we take communion together, you'll notice you'll take that top clear piece off and take the little bread. And then peel back the foil that's taken, eat, and remember the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a tough passage. Not, not really because of the story, but because it's our story. We are the man, the woman. The damage that we've done to ourselves, to people that we love, the bitterness because of our sin we've planted in the life of somebody else. We're in desperate need of a Savior. And it can't be somebody from this earth it has to be somebody from heaven and we're so thankful that you came and did not grasp for yourself but emptied yourself on our behalf would you soberingly make us aware of the power of our own sin by slowly absorbing this message like a lighthouse that we might walk in a different direction and not shipwreck our souls but for all of us may we remember the grace and mercy of a God who runs towards us to restore we pray in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing our closing song